So we're at the end of our calendar year, uh, and oftentimes we, uh, we go into, this, uh, into this, uh, this season, into this winter break, or whatever it would be, um, uh, maybe tired, uh, maybe ready for a break. I feel like no matter where we would have this break, kind of with any break, we're like, oh, I needed that break. Oh, it came at the right time. We always need the break. Uh, but this one's, a, this, one's, this one's special because it's a break, so maybe we'd need that. But then also on the end of this break becomes the new year. And so then we also think, I need a break from this. Okay, so how do I not do that this year? I feel like that's kind of just, it's set up to have that theme of what am I going to do differently so that I'm not exhausted going into Christmas next year? And uh, I don't know. I've lived a handful of years I feel like it's just going to be that way every year. So what do we do with that? Um, we want something to change this year. And I think the big, the big point that we're going we're gonna to go after here today is that we want something to change. And, and, and so rather than, than looking about all those things that we need to change, our text here drives us very clearly, very specifically towards looking at Christ. If you want something to change, we need to look at Christ. And now that sounds like such a softball kind of, a, kind of a, an application or a point for a pastor to make, of course you're going to say, look towards Christ. But I think that there's more in that. Uh, it's not just a glancing blow or, or just a, out of the corner of our eye. That we're going to look intently on Christ and see that he actually is, is so different than the solutions we may be looking for, that there is something actually, actually foundationally different about the change that takes place in ways that may change the whole course of your life as it does for these shepherds. You see, I, I think sometimes I review the year and, uh, and I forget that, uh, that a lot of good stuff happened. I think I thank God for that at Thanksgiving, and then by Christmas, I just kind of remember all the bad stuff. I'm like, oh man, this is, this is pretty rough, and it takes me a little bit more of an act. Maybe I'm just wired that way, and maybe I'm, this is like confession time for me, sorry. Uh, that I'm that maybe just wired to kind of focus a little bit more on the negative things and always forget really quickly the good things that have happened. Um, maybe when you, when you look at your spot in life right now, or maybe when you do that on the drive somewhere or, or in, in the time of, of, of New Year or whatever it would be, uh, that you look at it, you think kind of maybe what these shepherds are thinking is like, oh man, I got stuck on the night shift watching sheep at night. I, 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 this is not where I thought I was going to be when I was looking at life 20, 30, 50 years ago. So what do we, what do, we do with that? I, I want to change my, 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 my way in life. I want to change this this year. We're going to get on the horse and we are going to ride that thing this year. We're not getting knocked off. We're going to do something here, and, and, and what we get from these shepherds is a wonderful story. Now, they're not the point of the story here, but they give us a great line to follow as, as we try and understand what do we do going into this next year, and how does Christ play into this? We want to change something. We need to look to Christ. Now, we read it here, and it's really subtle, but I want to, I want to make it crazy not subtle, like in, incredibly lift it up here. Uh, there's a phrase that we're introduced here, in, uh, in verse 15, and, uh, and it's a big deal. Uh, okay, so it says, uh, the shepherds say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. <laughs> I love it. I feel like it's like, uh, I love the, uh, the Christmas story, the one with Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun, and he describes, he's like, in all of this eloquence, yeah, blah, 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 it's this thing, it's amazing, it's got this locking thing, I don't even remember how he says it, but he says, and it has this thing 
that keeps time. Like, come on, man. Like, this thing? What is that? There's this thing that shows up here in the text. This thing. Let's go over and check out this thing. These shepherds know that there's an answer in this thing. They know there's something about this thing. And so today we're going to look at maybe three, uh, three aspects of this thing. This thing. We're going to be looking, at, uh, looking for this thing. What is this answer? What will, what will change my, my way in life? Is this the answer? We're going to look for this thing. We're going to be seeing this thing as it really is. And then we're going to be revealing this thing for others. And I love the language of this thing because it's so ambiguous you know what is this thing it kind of invites us just the way that Luke I mean he's very intentional in his writing and when he writes this thing it kind of invites us into this mystery what is this it kind of asks that question what is he talking about now we can look up and see he's revealing uh, the angels revealing a lot of the content there and we'll get to that We'll, we'll clarify what it is but it invites us on a journey as any good literature does, we kind of have to journey with the shepherds to find out what, what do they see of this thing? What, what's going on with this thing? What is this thing? And then what does it mean for me today? As we follow the shepherds in these verses, we find out that this thing is actually a very big deal. So with that, let's get on to it. Verse 16. It says, uh, uh, well, sorry, I'll go back to 15. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Then we're in verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You see, what happens here is they hear this announcement from the angels, and then they act on it with haste. They're very fast to their response. Why are they quick to their response? Well, I think maybe just going with some of the options, not all the options. Maybe it's because they're so freaked out by this angelic host. Like, well, that was crazy. We should probably, like, go figure this thing out. So, I mean, that could be it. Uh, and that's probably some of it. Uh, maybe it's uh, because they rightly understand angels and their message uh, way better than we do today. We've kind of messed that whole idea up in our culture. And they understood this is a big deal. When an angel comes and tells you something, you believe it, and you go and check it out. Uh, that's probably there uh, as well. Uh, maybe the one I kind of want to focus on here today is, uh, is that I believe a large part of their quick response, their with hastiness, is because they have been waiting and longing for this Savior. You see, the angel comes and he says, he says, I bring you good news of great joy that unto you is born a Savior. They've been waiting a long time. Now, I went with the... Uh, I, I went through, maybe I talked about this a bit here uh, uh, last week. I went through uh, with the... Uh, with the daycare kids, um, just kind of the story of the whole Bible and this idea of waiting and longing. And, uh, and, and I flipped through uh, the Bible and I said, Jesus, or God makes a promise to Abraham that he'll bless the nations here. And, uh, and that's not very far in. And then he had all these kids. I don't know how I got them to be so silent. I said, and we're going to wait for it. 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 And these kids are just waiting waiting and they're quiet they're like i'm just gonna do this all day no no the uh, the uh, but we go and it's just like so tense i said and then right about here when the psalms were starting to turn into the prophets people kind of forget what we're waiting for and then the prophets come and they say oh guys he's coming the savior's coming this is going to be great and then each of the prophets keeps saying he's there he's coming he's coming he's coming and then we get to luke 2 and the angel says 
he's here. Let's have a birthday party. It's fantastic. And, 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 and he comes, and so this is great. The Savior is finally here. They've been waiting. They've been sitting out in their fields doing their work. So they're not just sitting there hoping and bunkered in. They're actually getting to work. They're doing something in their livelihood, but they're waiting and they're longing for this Savior to come. So, of course, when the answer comes, and he says, your Savior is here, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I think sometimes we don't act so quickly because we're waiting for the wrong Savior. Life feels more like an ongoing series of events or relationships and issues that keep that dark reality, uh, keep us in a darker reality than we'd imagined in our youth, maybe in our jobs, maybe in our marriages or parenting or, or in our health. We just think, ah, I'm just getting beat up. This is not as, as, as sparkly, shiny as it was meant to be. We try to change the course uh, in different ways. And I'll just go with noble ways uh, here. We, sometimes we just think that maybe we go to work or maybe we go to church and it'll be good. And maybe I can do enough by church attendance that things will change. You, get, you, you definitely see people coming to church more in dark times, in dark seasons of life. Um, and so it's a reality. We, we, we have that. But sometimes I think even if, if, if uh, church attendance is a thing for us, sometimes we come with the wrong reasons. I know I've come uh, sometimes saying, God, I just need an answer on how to do this. And so hopefully I hear something this week that will help me answer this question. Now what we're doing there is we're saying, you know, we've got this problem. I'm a shepherd, and so I'm going to go and I'm going I'm to talk to Christ. I'm going to talk to Jesus, and I'm going to see how Jesus can help me shepherd better so that it's not as, you know, lonely and night shifty. But that's not what happens with these shepherds. There's something different there. It's normal over the holidays to reflect on the year. Assess your current state of life. You may be considering making changes in your job, uh, in your marriage, in your finances, in your health, in your friends, in your education, in your housing, in your retirement. The gospel, the good news of our Savior, probably won't give you the direct answers to these things uh, any more than it would answer the night shift shepherd's problems. However, the capital N nativity, the threshold of, of God the Son coming into this world, it does change everything. See, this message here is a little bit different, a lot a bit different, and foundationally so. Part of the good news is that this light doesn't come at the dawn. I think that's the beautiful thing. The shepherds don't have to wait in darkness. It comes ripping through the darkness into their life, into their face, with an angelic host, and that's what happens to us. The gospel does that to us. For you who come here with deep darkness and you're wondering what is going on, the gospel is good news. Like here, here's your light. It's here. You don't have to wait until... The dawn. You don't have to wait till it, till, it, till it settles on its own. The gospel is here. Your hope, your salvation, your joy, the love of God is here now. And that's what lights these shepherds up. And that's what makes them move with haste because they've been told something that's real and it also matches their reality. And they say, this has got to happen. We've got to go see this kid. So, they go looking for this thing, 
And what they find in this, in verse 17, is that they get to see this thing. And when they saw, this is verse 17, and when they saw it, which in the Greek is literally this thing, and when they saw this thing, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So if the nativity is the threshold of God coming into this world in the flesh, then it's the place of the creator entering his creation, the author entering his story, the king entering his kingdom. And so we read, when they saw this thing, it means that, just, I mean, just imagine right there, they're looking at this baby, at this thing. They're looking at all of the cosmos right here aligned in this baby. I, I can't imagine looking at that. All of the power and all of the majesty and all of the answers that are right there in this thing. I can imagine their minds were blown. Their hearts were full. And we definitely, from the text, can tell that their mouths were busy making known the reality of the good news that they'd heard. That God saves sinners. And here, in this night, in this moment, they're looking at the answer. God saves sinners and our Savior has come. That is incredible. This thing that they saw is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The fancy church word for this is the incarnation. I'm going to sit there for a little bit because it's a big, big deal. Incarnation. So uh, the incarnation is God becoming, uh, taking on flesh and becoming man. So that's the, the basic thing. Here's a really fun, uh, uh, nice way to, uh, to understand that. Incarnation, so the prefix in to like put something into it, into it. Uh, so we're embodying a thing. Carn carnation, the root of that is like, all the Latin languages say like carne. You know, if you go to like a Mexican place and you order carne, it's meat. So it's like the meated thing of God. So now you're thinking of burritos instead of the Messiah. Whoops. Uh, so the incarnation, the fleshliness, the enfleshing of God here. That's what they're looking into. This is huge. For several reasons, I'll give you two big reasons, and this is how the incarnation is light in the midst of darkness. And then, how, and then we'll look at how it changes our trajectory of what that means for our lives. So the two, the two points are the incarnation is real hope for today, real hope for today, and the incarnation gives us purpose for today. The incarnation is not wishful thinking about the future. Do we say, oh, God became, God became man, and that means something for my future. If he can do it then, then all these things happen. And we look at Jesus, and this is a real thing. Like he goes and he's the advocate for us and we can hope for his, his coming again and, and these kind of things. Like if he came once, he'll come again, and I'm just gonna hope for that. So sometimes we think that it's hopeful uh, thinking. If we are Christians and believe this scripture here, the message of God that he's revealed to us. If we, if we don't believe this, then oftentimes we can just say, oh, that's just... Weird, like Christians like to believe that this happened so that they can feel good that Jesus was kind of like them, I guess. Um, that's probably a poor representation of that, but um, it's not wishful thinking. See, Dr. Luke here, as he's, as he's writing carefully as a historian, he's writing a historical account that you might have confidence in your faith. That's his whole point, remember? His whole point here is to, to write that. What his point that he's making here in this incarnation and that, and that it's been cited by many, many witnesses here, and that this, this God-man does exist and came to Bethlehem in swaddling clothes, in a manger. What he means to say is that God keeps his 
promises. This is an historical event confirming that God keeps his promises to rescue, redeem, and restore those who confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior. This is a real thing. This is not just a message that pastors like me get paid to you know, produce on, on Christmas because it's what we do. Like Pastors are actually like really historians right now, and we just collectively remind, here's what happened, guys, and that's why we're celebrating. That's an incredible thing. We're going to look into the scripture. We're going to look into the history and see that this God keeps his promises, that this Savior was said to come and has come, and so we can trust him in his word, that he will forgive us when we confess our sins and accept him as Savior. So what is the real hope that the incarnation gives? I think it's many of those things. But maybe thinking of the, uh, the Advent candles here, we can find that the hope that the incarnation gives is that our fear may turn to joy when our confidence is laid upon Jesus and he takes our deepest sorrows upon himself, turning death into life. What a great joy is that. Uh, we, we can have hope that tumultuously rising waters of our constant striving for approval may break at the footstool of the throne of this Prince of Peace bringing us to a place of completeness, of wholeness, that the word there is shalom, of true rest that is found only in him. That's a great hope. We hope for a joy. We hope for this peace, and we hope for this love, that love would no longer be an ongoing, restless pursuit of some idea or something or, or someone to quiet that voice that says, you're alone in this world. You deserve to be alone in this world. You will always be alone. No one truly loves you. But, but rather, that a real hope today is because the real love of God the Father that he has for you, that the steadfast love of God, that the character, that deep-seated character of God has incarnated, has taken flesh upon himself and become Jesus Christ. And that he bore your real sin. And that he physically took it to the grave. And then he handed you righteousness. That's an incredible love. That's something that we can hope for. That is an incredible love. And he did this all so that we might dwell in the real presence of a real everlasting father for God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's all because of his love that he has sent his son. Now with some, uh, some, some eloquent uh, language here from, uh, from one of the church fathers from the fourth century, uh, his name's Athanasius. Uh, he describes the incarnation this way. He says, thus it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once, referring to the incarnation. He says, the death of all was consummated in the Lord's body, yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. He, he brings upon himself the brokenness, that, that structure of brokenness in the world that is our fleshly bodies. And because he is also God, he binds them together, and in the godness of it, he is claiming victory over it. That's incredible. That's not, that's not you know, uh, calling in the, 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 air, uh, the airstrike. 
That's jumping in on the ground and saying, I have victory over you. I know you. I have looked you in the face. I have wrestled with you for decades. And Jesus Christ on the cross says, it's finished. We have conquered this. We've abolished this. This is the real hope for today. See, we started here in history, and now we're seeing that our history gives us this miraculous reality that we can have hope in today. And I think this is all good, and this is all well, but as the shepherds show us, the incarnation can't be left where we have it right now. It's in a beautiful spot, but we can't leave it here. The incarnation is not for sitting on a hill at night in the midst of a sermon, at your table when you're doing devotions, as, 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 wherever it is that you may, that you may pray or read, read scripture. Sometimes we have those wonderful thoughts, but that's not it alone. See, what do, the, what, what do the shepherds do? The shepherds show us that rather than just sit on a hill and delight in the message or, or whatever God is telling us, that the incarnation is for the coming and going of everyday life. They get to work. They go somewhere, and they do something with the thing that they have heard. They go looking for this thing, and they see this thing. The incarnation isn't simply a real hope for today. It is also a real purpose for today. John 17. Uh, in John 17, uh, verses 15 through uh, 16, Jesus prays for his disciples. It's up on the screen here. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do you see that here? Okay, look, at, look, look at those words again. Jesus, the incarnate God-man who spans the reality of heaven and earth within himself as man prays to God and his words are these. He says, uh, I'll flip this around. He says, keep them from the evil one, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's right in the middle. And then how does he do that? You go to the beginning. He says, keep them from the evil one, but not by removing them from their, from their work in this broken world. I think that's incredible. I think that's a huge thing uh, for us today. Because he says, as he says, you, you, you keep them from, uh, protect them from the evil one, but their work in this world isn't inherently evil. Their lives in this world aren't inherently evil. There is evil in this world, but they've got work to do in it. So, Jump in the mud of this world, but put on some boots. That's such a great, that's such a great prayer for us. In the, the, in the incarnation, Jesus joins together spirit and flesh, breaking the old Gnostic view that the stuff of this earth is cursed and that our only escape is through our reason or our imagination, that we can go through this life and hate it, but those moments when we close our eyes and think of something that's not really real, that's when we find true bliss and blessedness. Jesus in the incarnation smashes those together and destroys that view. And he says there is something redemptive in the work itself. There is something wonderful and redeeming about working in the world around us with the people around us for the purposes of God. The incarnation gives us purpose for today by joining together, as Athanasius has said, the corruption of this world and the good news of its ultimate end. Our king has come. The battle is won. And so we get back to the story here, and we see that these shepherds begin revealing this thing. Verse 17 again. 
And when they saw this thing, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now we'll read on, verses 18 through 20. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So something here happens. We see that in the shepherds, kind of just following them, that working out our faith is a corporate activity. It's something we do together. Uh, no man is an island. That's a, a, a quote by a, by a, by a famous uh, a writer who suggests that we can't simply just think through our faith on our own. We can't just do our devotions at our table. We can't just pray on our own. But, but there's this corporate activity. There's this communal thing that necessarily happens in understanding who Jesus Christ is. We need each other to understand God more fully. It's something to be done together. You see that? You see that the shepherds are saying this. Verse 15, the shepherds say, let us go. Now let's send a representative to go check this thing out. Let's all go together. Let's check this thing out. And it's not just because they're all interested in it. Uh, there's more about this in verse 17. Then as they're, as they're kind of looking into, uh, in, into the manger, they're, they're trying to figure this thing out. You can tell that they're like wrapping people in this uh, as well. When they saw this thing, they made known, and then verse 18, then all who heard what they had been making known. So they're talking to the people around them. They're kind of looking in and they're saying, whoa, check this thing out. Like, this is really cool. I just came across something that's awesome. If you've ever uh, had, had good news, to, uh, or exciting news or, or, or juicy news to share with someone. It, it's like contagious. There's this, there's this thing that you just want to share this news. Now, there's so much parallelism uh, going on in this, chap, in, in this uh, chapter. In verses 8 through 20, you can almost see this overlap. There's this thing that happens is that these, these shepherds are sitting here and these angels come, you know, on commission by God, and they give this good news. They make known this mystery of Christ that he has been born in Bethlehem. But these shepherds, they're going to confirm it, but even as they're confirming it, we see that they are making known, same wording, the angels are making known this news, and as, as the shepherds go about it, try to figure out what this news actually is, they are also making known this news to everybody around them. I think that helps us with something. If we follow kind of the example here, or, or maybe even just see how the good news is just this ongoing activity, sometimes I believe we, we myself, receive the good news. We listen to a great sermon, and we leave it there. We read something in Scripture, and we leave it there. What has this text to say for me today? I hate my boss. I'm going to read Nehemiah 13, apparently, today, and God's going to have something in there for me. And so, mmm, I just squeeze it for everything I can get. Praise God, and then we move on. And that's <laughs> devotions like, what, 90% of the time? Um, we never really read this for how am I going to share this news with someone? What if our devotions were others focused? How might I receive from the angels this message of God that has been revealed to us here so that I might go share and make known this news for others? Oh, that's a different thing. Nehemiah 13, I could tell somebody about the glory of God in that. I'm not sure it's actually going to solve today's issue that I am thinking about right now. There's a different way of receiving this message, and it, and it oftentimes, I think we've done this horribly in the church today, is that we often think that we're the end of it because we're consumers, and we consume it, and it stops with us. We never give it. We never share it. If we were just stewards of the gospel, as the angels and shepherds are, we would see that it's not our own, but rather we just take it and pass it on 
and, and we look at it and delight in it, and there's beauty in, in, in passing it on. So they pass it on to all who heard. Now I want to, uh, I'm going to look at these three different uh, effects that are there, but I, but I want to pull out maybe a little bit uh, of some wording here. The word all shows up a lot. It hasn't shown up that much yet. The word all is here. All who heard it. Mary treasured up all these things. They went away praising God for all they had seen. You see, there's this trajectory that happens as, we, as, as, the, as the message goes out, is that, that what happens here, verse 8 and 9, is that these shepherds are here, and then there's a message here, and then they all look at this baby, and they're no longer worrying about all their problems of the day. They're no longer worrying about, what am I going to do when I go back to work? They're looking intently at Christ, and at that point, this thing changes everything. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. There's something massive about this idea of not keeping it to yourself, that Christ is the thing that changes everything, and it's for all people. Verse 18, all who heard this wondered. There's a beautiful trajectory of this word here, wonder in the book of Luke. And I think Luke is trying to do this as he writes. Uh, so uh, the, the word for wonder shows up a handful of times in, in the book of Luke, maybe a dozen times. In this first, maybe third of the book, first couple chapters here, the word is used for this curious mystery. And so, they, so right here we could say that they got this and this was a curious mystery. They wanted to s- settle this. They wanted to figure this thing out. We see that Jesus starts his ministry, maybe right around chapter, I don't know, 7 through 11. You see some more appearances of this word uh, uh, for wonder. And, and it turns to this idea of this, this spiritual or miraculous uh, uh, amazement. They're, they're amazed that, that this kind of thing could happen from a person because they're figuring out who Jesus is. They're no longer curious about who he is. They're seeing these things, and it kind of shapes their curiosity a little bit more. And then towards the end, well, actually, it's the last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 24. We see it a couple times there, and, and everyone is amazed. They're astonished. It's, it's more of an eternal astonishment. They say, ah, this whole life, we were curious. We were amazed. And now the risen Lord is here, and we are astonished because this reality is real. Oh, man, that's incredible. The word itself is shaped throughout the gospel through all of these, through all of these occurrences. The word itself shows us that no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter how we view Jesus, no matter what, you're, what kind of Jesus you have right now, and I'm saying it needs to be the Lord and Savior Christ, but there are different ways that we can view him. You might be not even interested in this Jesus Christ right now. You might be curious on the fence wondering, is this guy real? Is this who he says he is? You might be in, in a season where you're amazed, where you're seeing, whoa, things have happened. And we can't explain how, how Jesus works this way. And I, I, I am miraculously amazed at him. And maybe, maybe you're seeing an eternal perspective of this and saying, oh man, this, this, is, this is nuts. This is incredible. We cannot exhaust the wonder of God. And all who heard it wondered. No matter where you're at, there is something to learn from this thing, this incarnated Savior who has come here to rescue and redeem us. You will never exhaust the infinite wonder of Christ. And 
you can share that with others. We see that with Mary. Mary, Jesus' mother. We read that she's, uh, what is the wording here? But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This idea of treasuring up, it, it means to like make a storehouse, to, to bring it together and store it up to consider it for later. I always think of, uh, I don't know, this will show my age or whatever. I always think of uh, Scrooge McDuck. I don't even know why. And as he's swimming through all of his coins, uh, and he's swimming through his coins, he treasures them up, and then he like, goes and swims through it. You know, we've got a book of King Midas. It's the same idea. He goes and he checks out all of his gold every day. Um, it's that thing. We store it up so we can delight in it later. And that's what she's doing here. Maybe you've gone to, uh, on, on a cool family trip. And you take a whole bunch of pictures because it's what we do in our culture. But also maybe you were uh, wanting to treasure up these things so you could remember them later. What she's doing right here, what Mary's doing right here, is she's holding this baby. She like literally just gave birth to the Son of God. And she decides maybe that's not so good for a selfie right now. I'm just going to take this one in. And I'm going to look and I'm going to enjoy this baby. And, and, And if you've ever had a baby. I've never given birth, but I've been there and held the baby and had that moment of like, this is glorious. I, I don't need the cameras right now. I just want to take this in. She is having that moment. She is treasuring that up. Maybe you've had another moment like that where you say, this is too good. I have to treasure this up. I have to actively make a memory of this with every possible deal, detail I possibly can because I got to come back to this because this is so good. She is doing that. But it's amazing that verse 19 falls into the same spot as, uh, falls into the context of this response. Because I feel like you could take verse 19 and say, Mary was off on the side doing her own thing while everybody else is wondering and the shepherds are doing their thing and she's just kind of in the corner with this baby doing this thing. No, they're all together and something has happened that has triggered this memory. The shepherds made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and Mary treasured up all this thing, all these things. Sometimes you, you may be you know, early into your faith, and you feel maybe too dumb or uh, too uninformed or not as spiritual or not as mature of a Christian as other people are, and so you just kind of like avoid small group or community group. You avoid you know, maybe praying with others. You avoid uh, whatever it might be. Because, I mean, they're titans. They're, they're huge. This is, this is intimidating. Even these night shift shepherds spoke a word that ministered to the mother of God. So share those things. Share those things of Christ. What we get on so many different levels in this story is that angels share this miraculous word. The shepherds share this miraculous word. That even Mary can receive it, and it does something to her. She is ministered in this moment. She knows the most about Jesus Christ on earth. She's been there every second. But something happens that they can minister to her. So if you are a mature Christian, be receptive to that. You may need to be ministered to by the young ones in the faith that don't really know what they're saying. They may accidentally give you something so wonderful. So listen up. And you can't listen unless you're all together. And those of you who are young in the faith, speak freely. Know your limits, but speak freely. And then we get to the shepherds, and this is great. The shepherds returned. Where do they return? I want to add that one in. They return to the day job. That's what they do. They go back to the field. 
I feel like something, something here, this is kind of, kind of all the way where, where we were, uh, started, is that oftentimes we go to church, or, or maybe in this season, where we're reflecting on what am I going to do in my changes that I'm going to make this year around. Uh, you would think that maybe the story would go this way. Uh, some shepherds were on the field making a humble living, and then an angel of the Lord came, and then their fortunes changed. And then they became Billy Graham. And then they had the greatest message, and so they capitalized on this message and made a billion dollars. No, they went back to their work. But they went back completely changed because they went back glorifying and praising God for all they had. The incarnation binds these things together, and it doesn't say your work is terrible. Jesus Christ does not say, I have given you this curse so that it will crush you. Now, there are real reasons to leave work when necessary for the cause of Christ. There are real reasons to change a situation in your life, to remove or include relationships in your life. Now, I'm not saying that's the case, but if we think that going to church is going to drastically alter where we go, I'm not sure the gospel is trying to do that. The gospel is trying to drastically alter the trajectory of our souls so that we don't go back to the field grumpy and complaining and with a very narrow view of God. They went back glorifying God. But ultimately, yours, is not, uh, yours and mine is not the journey of, of seeking shepherd, uh, uh, shepherd-likeness or all those who heard thisness, or conforming to the image of Mary, because here's, here's the big reveal in the whole story here. The, the point is, is, is Christ, is the baby, is this thing. And I'd love to tell you to be like these shepherds. Now, they give great examples. I'd love to tell you to be like these people. I'd love to tell you to receive so intimately, ponder on these things like Mary. Those are good things, and I don't want to say they're bad, but that's not the point. Because that's what Christians do. That would be Christianity. But, but, but if I'm to preach Christ here, we need to look at one more step. That these are just the working out of a greater task that he's given us. And this is our real task that transforms everything. Is that we're not told to be like them. But rather we're told to be like Christ. We're told to be the incarnated Christ in this world. And that is a huge, a huge task. Ephesians 3, it references this, uh, the, the mystery of Christ and the manifold wisdom of God, and it says that it's been made known in the church, which is, here's incarnational language, which is his body. We are the body of Christ. This story shows that God became man, and now for us, how do we live this out? It's not by following, uh, just being happy at work like the shepherds. It's by, by, by taking on our role as the church, as the body of Christ, as being that in the world today. Romans 8 says that he intended that we be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 13, let us walk properly, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these characters in this story here, they give us examples of how we might go about our ultimate task of making known the message of God. But we must ultimately look to Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the King, and consider how we might best make him known throughout our world, praising and glorifying as we return for home over the holidays, or as we come back to our work, whether that's in a home, uh, in an office, in a classroom. 
wherever we are coming and going, we need to take on the image that we, in fact, are the incarnated Christ in this world. We aren't Jesus, but we are his representatives in thought, in word, and in deed. That changes so much of how we go about the way we live. See, we are the heralds of his message. We take this word and we put flesh on it. I mean, that's, that's what's happening right now. We take this revealed truth. John 1 says, he is the word eternal and he took on flesh as the incarnated Christ, as the church, as the body of Christ. That's our task, to do that. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means for you in the next 48 hours of Christmas time. I don't know what that means for you in the next three, four weeks of considering what we're gonna do next. I don't know what that means for 2019, but I do know. What we get from these examples is to make much of Christ. And when we think about all these different changes, that maybe there are trajectories that the gospel says, hey, this person's pretty rough. This, this, this situation's pretty bad. This, uh, this idea is wrong. This habit that you've developed needs to go. There are trajectories of that. But as we all pack up and go or stay or host or do nothing, as we do that, I would encourage you to consider your life as, 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 as one uh, who is bringing that message to the world around you, as the one who is exploring and changed by this thing. But ultimately, I just invite you to take the posture of the shepherds and let the world fade and look at Christ. And look at Christ and keep looking at Christ. And you can't look at Christ rightly unless you're opening the Bible and hearing the message of the revealed Christ. He's a beautiful Christ. He's the only Christ. He is the one that we need. The church is not, uh, this will be my last point, uh, the church is not designed to be anything other than that place where we remind each other of the light in the darkness. Like sometimes we think that the church is a morning of consumeristic entertainment so we come for that, and that's not satisfying. We think that it's a legalistic requirement for the good life. That also is not satisfying. That's pretty crushing. So we, uh, nor is it a social gathering that, that kind of fights off our, 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 our loneliness or our individualism. It is that place, and it's because of the nativity and how he came where unexpected people can remind one another of the true light in the darkness of the week. It's one of the things that I think is so special about the confessions that we have every week, is that we remind ourselves that we live in a dark world. It's not all bad, we don't need to get rid of it, but we live in a dark world. But the thing that's even better is that we create that darkness. I think that's the beauty of that confession, and that we need to pray longingly, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, forgive us. Forgive these things. Come, be that light. We need you to get rid of this darkness. And that's the beauty of Advent. It validates that longing. And it says, we know what happened, and that gives us the hope for what will come. He has come, and he has that light, and ultimately he will consummate it, and there will be no darkness. There will be no end. And you can hang on in your dark times of doubt 
in your struggles in your marriage, in your, in your, in your, uh, in your wayward children, in your, uh, in your crummy bosses. You can hang on in those things because one day it will all be light for those who believe. The issue is not the things of this world. The issue is the sin that changes it. Focus on Jesus. He is that light. He is that transforming power that will change everything so that we can be in one region, go and see this Savior, and then go back out into the world, returning, glorifying, and praising God. Let's pray.